Did you see this headline from Washington Post? Can we put that up, please? Russian operatives use Facebook ads to exploit America's racial and religious divisions. Ooh. You're like, whoa, is it? Yeah. Apparently, Russian operatives used Facebook to send sort of confusing and contrary messages to different user groups based on political, religious uh, groupings. But the reason why it worked, apparently, is because we already, in our social sphere, live in silos, in echo chambers. We in America already only interact with dialogue with, do life with people who think and act just like us. So it didn't take much, it didn't take much for people to go, ah, I was suspicious of you, now I'm even more suspicious of you. I was unsure of you, now I'm even more unsure of you. I was fearful of you, and now I am even more fearful of you. And we become even more entrenched and fearful of the stranger. The horrors of 9-11 didn't create bigotry towards Muslims. The horrors of 9-11 incited existing bigotry towards Muslims. This is the world that we live in. You live in. By the way, you know what I find so ironic? I, I, I always feel like I'm going to get myself into trouble. What I find so ironic is that Christians in this country, Christians, have been praying for the Muslim world for decades. And God is answering our prayers <laughs> by bringing them to our doorsteps. Hello, somebody. There is enormous hunger within the Muslim world, as many have become disillusioned with Islam. My question is, what is the American church doing about the Muslims who are now our neighbors? What are we doing about the Muslims who are neighbors? It's easy to pray for the world when you don't have to look them in the eyes. It's easy to care for and pray for the world from a distance. It's easy. It's easy to say I'm praying for them and caring for them when they don't live near us and start occupying our emotional space. I don't know, just a thought. Just a thought. So here's a question I've been asking you and me to wrestle with. Who is your stranger? Come on, be honest. Be honest. Who is your stranger? Have you had them around your table? Have you found a way to truly enter into their world in a meaningful way? Have you given them even an hour of your undivided attention? Are you any different, Christian, than the rest of your society and your culture who says, I am suspicious of you, I cut you off. I am fearful of you, I cut you off. I am unsure of you, I cut you off. Are we any different? That's why I'm saying maybe hospitality will change our world. Maybe radical hospitality is what will heal us. Because the only way that walls can come down is when labels become human faces. 
We only stay scared of people that we don't know. And it's easier to fear a whole group of people than to actually give one person a chance. And when our hearts are filled with ignorance and fear and prejudice and suspicion and jealousy, there is no room here. That's why I said hospitality is a state of our heart before it's a practice. There is no room here for listening, for receiving, for welcoming. But maybe proximity can begin to change things. Maybe listening genuinely, biblically can change things. Conversation can change things. A meal can change things. And I found that it's tough to really, really live, love, love a people group if I don't know or love a single person within the people group. It's really hard to love people with disabilities if you don't know a single person with disabilities. It's really hard to love the undocumented. Think about our world now. The undocumented. When you don't know a single person who's undocumented, it's really difficult to love the poor if you don't know a single person who's struggling with poverty. I think Jesus was the most welcoming, hospitable person that ever lived. Do you think so? I do. I think Jesus was a master at welcoming those unlike him, religiously, socially, culturally, spiritually. This is one of my favorite verses in the Gospels. Here's what the religious leader said about him. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus loved to welcome those unlike him, accepted them. How do we know? Because he ate with them. Look at the number of times Jesus shares a meal with someone. We talked last week about the holiness of sharing a meal. Sharing a meal with someone in that culture, table fellowship, was the ultimate sign of acceptance. Let me just real quick, a minute here. We misunderstand the nature of what acceptance is. Acceptance has nothing to do with condoning. Acceptance has nothing to do with approving someone's behavior. Acceptance has nothing to do with it. Acceptance biblically, is about recognizing the inherent value, dignity, and sacred humanity in each person creating the image of God. Full stop. No ifs and buts. That's what acceptance is. And Jesus comes and accepts those unlike him. And you will not be able to, I will not be able to accept others, welcome others, if the gospel is not real to you. If you're new to our church, we use this definition a lot. The gospel is this. By the way, it's 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. I knew that vast majority of you didn't know and you could care less. But anyway, 500 years. And Martin Luther says something very famous. Does anybody know what he's known for? Simul hustus el peccator, which means simultaneously just and sinner. The gospel says, although I am more wicked and sinful than I dared believe, in Christ I am more accepted and more loved at the same time. Is that good news to anybody? That's what the gospel is. I am simultaneously just in Christ, but yet a sinner. And the ability to accept and welcome those unlike you begins with understanding, man, there's some wickedness still there. There's some, there's some sinfulness still there. But I'm loved. God's not done with me yet. I am not finished yet. It's really difficult to love someone that you disagree with if you secretly believe that they need Jesus more than you do. I'm going to say it again. It's really difficult for you to love someone you disagree with. If secretly, deep down inside, you go, you need Jesus more than I do. You cannot love them. 
Do you hear me? I'm going to say it one more time. You cannot genuinely, think about that stranger, genuinely, sexual orientation, a different race, ethnicity, different religion. You cannot genuinely love someone that you disagree with. If you secretly downside believe, well, you need Jesus more than I do. You can't. You can't. I can't. The battle to welcome, accept someone can seem like a struggle with no value. But the struggle matters. It's making you stronger. It's making you better. Lean into it. Lean into it. Hebrews chapter 13 is where we've been parked at. I'm literally like preaching one verse a week. Aren't you thankful I don't preach the whole books of the Bible? Because we would be here. Well, actually I did through the book of Acts. And we spent four years on it. Anyway. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let's go back because we're going to actually finally get to verse 3 today. Keep on loving one another, brothers and sisters, and do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Philozenia had a very specific practical meaning. It literally meant to bring them into your home as guests. And the author of Hebrews has in mind Genesis 18. When Abraham went out to this city, well, and I'll talk about this in a minute, and he brought three what he thought were strangers in, and they depart the next day after he is hospitable to them, and he realizes that they were what? God and his angels. And William Lane, a New Testament professor, says this about that verse in hospitality. He says, for Christians, the expectation is that God will play a significant role in the ordinary exchange between guests and hosts. The expectation lends to hospitality a sacramental quality. And I said last week, what's a sacrament? A sacrament in the Christian, uh, in our Christian world is sacrament is the baptism, the Lord's Supper. But what is it? What is baptism, Lord's Supper? Here's what it is. It's common use of water, baptism, and Lord's Supper, bread and wine. It's common. But here's what we Christians believe and why you and I take communion every month. We actually believe that in that ordinary element of bread and wine, that when dedicated to God, that becomes a vehicle for what? God's power and his grace to come flooding into our lives. That's what we believe. And what William mainly says is about hospitality. He said, ordinary stuff like taking someone out for coffee, inviting your new apartment mate into your home for, for a meal, going with your small group member to sit at the hospital while they wait for tests. All of these common, ordinary things. You don't have to be a spiritual director. You don't have to be a trained counselor. You, these are ordinary, common things. And yet, the Bible says, when you do them and you dedicate it to God, it becomes a vehicle and a channel for God's grace and power to come into their lives. Whew. It takes faith, just like anything else, to believe that God could actually use these common, ordinary, me and meal and coffee and Water, and yet God says, when you use it, I come in that. And when you get that, you begin to understand. I met with my men's group this, uh, yesterday, and one of our guys shared this powerful thing. He says, the last two, three weeks, I've literally, like it's been ingrained in me now, Peter. Like when I actually walk up, remember what he said? I, I actually look up now. I don't do this. I look up and I look at people passing by, and I make eye contact. And I say hi. Some of them ignore me. Some of them say hi. He says, when I'm at the playground with my child, I'm actually observing. Who are the parents here? What are they doing? How do I talk to them? How do I get to know them? How do I, how do I figure out ways to invite them into? 
you begin to realize that your entire life approach begins to go, how do I, a recipient of God's hospitality, begin to use my hospitality to bring people into God's welcome? What can I do? You said my time, energy, and effort. At work, home, school, you begin to open your eyes and begin to look and observe, pay attention and go, how do I? By the way, if you want to do this and serious about it, your life will get interrupted a lot. Control freaks, beware. I am one of those people. I walk out in the morning, my day is planned out. Come on, I'm not the only one. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Almost every minute is planned out. So when I'm at a coffee shop, I go, those two hours are for sermon prep. And yet, I find God goes, I could care less about your tidy little schedule, Peter. I could care less about your... Why? God says, you never know, and I and my angels might just show up. Hmm? So if you're serious about this, your life will get interrupted a lot. Also, if you're serious about this, your heart will get broken. People will disappoint you. But here's the question. Maybe the question is, how dangerous is that stranger? Maybe the question is, how dangerous will I become if I don't become more open to the stranger among us? Can I say it again? Hey, the question is, how dangerous is it? Maybe the question is, how dangerous will I become? What do I mean? In your life, one of two ways. Either your life, your heart is constantly getting stretched to be more loving. Sometimes it'll take heartache and brokenness. Or your heart will continue to close and harden and become selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed. So the question maybe is not, how dangerous is that stranger? Maybe the question is, how dangerous am I becoming by not being open to the stranger? You thought the last two weeks were hard. Today is going to be the hardest of them all about what it means to be radically hospitable. You ready? If you're ready, say amen. You ready? Because today, today, where we're going, what it means to be radically hospitable will challenge us and stretch us. But in the process, I believe it could change the world. So before I talk about that, I need to basically spend a couple minutes giving you some background to the hospitality code at the time because that's where we're coming here. Hospitality code. So you could imagine the first century world, okay? You could imagine that there were not a hotels or inns or resorts. Why? People didn't travel. Why? Because it was expensive to travel. And why? Because you had no means to travel. So there weren't industries for hotels. There weren't Radisons and Marriott's and so forth. And by the way, I love me some Marriott's and so on and so forth. But there weren't. You also didn't have friends all over. Why? Because again, people just didn't move. You and I, when we travel, we normally go to hotels or we stay at friends' houses, right? Because people move all the time. So hospitality was literally life or death. You were dependent on someone's hospitality, some stranger opening their home to you for you to survive, literally. That's why hospitality is such a, by the way, that's why Zeus is the god of hospitality. It was such a high value in that culture. There were four elements to the hospitality code that everyone understood. First, there was an invitation. Here's what you did. You were a stranger. You rode into town. (laughs) You didn't just go (laughs) knocking on doors. Hello, can I somebody? You didn't do that. Here's what you did. You went 
and you either found a city well outside the gate or the city gate. There was a designated common place where if you were a stranger, you went and you just waited. Because everybody knew that's where strangers who needed hospitality would wait. This is why Genesis 16, Genesis 19, and, and, and Acts 26, Paul and Philippi. It was a custom, if you're a stranger, you went to a town, city well, or by the gate, and someone would come, and they were secondly, screening. Someone would want to invite you, but they'd screen you. They wanted to make sure you weren't some enemy who were going to come into the city and infiltrate the city, right? So they would interview a little bit, where are you from? And if you were smart, you brought letters of reference from some important people like kings. So people would go, oh, okay, you're all right. Then there was the provision. If you found them, come, came to your home, you gave them a meal, you washed their feet, okay? And lastly, there was departure. You only stayed one or two days. That's why I said, you know, hospitality worked back then, okay? You didn't stay for more than a couple days. Don't stay at your family's in-laws for more than two days. Anyway, um, sorry, there's some parents and relatives here. Two days, that's all it did. Okay, so there was the invitation, screening, provision, departure. Everybody understood, this is the hospitality code. And then God comes along. And when he makes a covenant with his people, Israel, and tells them the kind of community that he wants them to be, he blew the hospitality code out of the water. He said, that's what your culture does. Let me tell you what you're going to do. Deuteronomy, chapter 8, chapter 10, verse 17. This is what God says. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the stranger by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the stranger, for you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. God takes for his people the constant hospitality and he blows it out of the water by doing two things. He gives them a completely different basis and he enlarges the scope of hospitality. First of all, the basis. Do you remember what he says? He says, here's why I need you to be hospitable. Because you were once strangers and aliens in a foreign land. He says, do you remember when you were in bondage to slavery? And do you remember how after I freed you, you wandered in the wilderness? Do you realize, listen to this, do you realize that if I didn't feed you and clothe you and bring you in, you would have died out there? And God says, here's why I need you to be hospitable to the refugee, to the immigrant, to the poor, to the orphan, and to the widow. He says, because you were once them. You were once them. And then he enlarges the scope. See, you thought radical hospitality at some point was going to be about bringing people home. And then God goes, here's who the stranger is. It's the poor. It's the Muslim refugee. It's the immigrant. It's the most vulnerable and marginalized in the city of Chicago and in your country. That's who the stranger is. And he says what? Clothe them. Feed them. Do, do justice for them. I told you today was going to be hard. I told you today was going to be challenging. I told you you're going to want to sit there and go, I don't want to do this. 
The author of Hebrews, by the way, picks up on this idea in Deuteronomy 10 because listen to what he says if you follow his line of reasoning. Verse 2, 13, 2. Don't forget to show hospitality strangers for do so so God, you've shown hospitality God any. And then verse 3, he says what? Continue. He's talking about hospitality. Continue to remember those in prison as if you yourselves were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were, mis- were suffering. And the word mistreated in Greek literally means the oppressed or victims of social injustice. And so all of a sudden, when we talk about welcoming the stranger, God goes, here's who the stranger is. It's the oppressed. It's the victims of social injustice. It's the poor. It's the weak. It's the marginalized. That's who the stranger is. Feed them. Clothe them. Do justice. Do you know why this was so radical? Do you know why this was so radical for the, for the listeners in, in that day? I'll tell you exactly why. This is the Greco-Roman world, and they function from what's called the patronage system. Do you know what the patronage system is? The entire system in the culture was built on, I do something for you, you do what? Something for me. Everything you did, you opened doors, why? So that they could open doors for you. You did stuff, so they would do stuff for you. You did everything so that they could pay you. It's to get someone to owe you. The patronage system. Aren't you so glad we're more enlightened now? Aren't you so glad that we live in a culture where we're poo-poo on that? Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. We do. We live and breathe and eat a consumer culture where relationships are transactional. I scratch your back, you what? Scratch my back. I open doors for you, you open doors for me. The entire relationship in our culture is based on what can I do for you so that I can get you to do something for you. So the thought of doing something for someone who can't do anything for you is unheard of in our culture. It's unheard of in our culture. And yet God comes along and says, here's what radical hospitality looks like. You don't go looking for angels. If that's an angel, if I do something for them, they'll do something for me. If I get you into social certain circles and my career ladder. No, God says you go looking for strangers. Then you might find angels. Let me ask you just a straight up question. Are you just like the culture? Are you living the way of the kingdom? Do you pursue relationships based on what can you do for me? What can you do for me? How can I benefit from you? How can I? Your coworkers do that. Your friends do that. You are breathing a culture where it's bombarded. Do you actually have the audacity and the courage to go radical hospitality? I am going to reach out to people that I could benefit nothing from. Narcissism kills hospitality. Narcissism kills hospitality. When you and I put me at the center, we consume people as commodities. And in the process, we are losing our souls. Look at your relationships. Look, you know when I was preparing this, you talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because I, I had to evaluate my approach to you guys. Ah! It's like 90% of the time, even when I, I cough and get to know, my approach many times is, what can you do for me in our church? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? How often, Peter, have you approached someone in our church simply from the perspective of, just want to love you with absolutely no benefit to me? God says, the poor, 
the marginalized. And by the way, when we're talking about hospitality, we're always talking about inclusion and exclusion. And our society excludes certain types of people and includes others. You know who is always excluded in our culture? It's the poor. The little, dirty American dream shame is that one out of every six child will grow up in poverty. That child will grow up knowing exclusion for the rest of his or her life. Every single one of us in here has an experience of what it to be excluded. We're in high school, not quite the right clothes. And so. There are people in here right now and out there who know that feeling every single day of their lives. And God says, it's them. I want you to welcome the poor, the marginalized, the weak, the vulnerable, the very people that your society and your culture has said you're not important. And all of a sudden you realize the hospitality is a justice issue. Didn't think I was going to go there, did you? It's a justice issue. It has a moral dimension to it. All of a sudden you realize hospitality has a moral dimension to it. It's not just about changing our hearts and relationships. It's about changing our communities. It has a social impact. It has economic impact. In order for us to understand how hospitality is a justice issue, three points, and then I need to sit down. Number one, we need to understand that in radical hospitality, in radical hospitality, it requires us to see God in the stranger. Radical hospitality requires us to see God in the stranger. Do you know how often the Bible describes God as the defender of the poor, the weak, the immigrant, the alien? I spoke at Judson this past Monday, and they always ask me. They go, and I've been there like four years in a row. I don't know they continue. I go, how do you want us to introduce you? And I go, da, 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 da. so part of the introduction is, this is Peter Hong. He's from Chicago. He pastors a church called New Community. I'm a, a lot of other things, but that's what I do in public. I'm pastor of New Community Covenant Church. So think about this with me. Think of how significant it is that the Bible over and over and over and over again, when it says, God, how do you want us to introduce you? God says, introduce me this way. I am defender of the weak. I am the defender of the poor. I am the defender of the marginalized. I am the defender of the hungry and the weak. There's so many verses, we don't have time for it. Let me just show you one. Go home and do your, you, 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 your exercise. Here's, here's one verse where God says, Psalm 141, uh, verse 12. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and he defends the cause of the needy. By the way, you want to know how much God identifies with the poor? Identifies with the poor? Here's what he says. Proverbs 14, 31, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. And whoever is kind to the needy honors God. God actually has the audacity to say, here's how much I identify with them. Ready? You honor them, you honor who? Me. You insult them, you insult me. You help them, you help me. I am their advocate, defender. I am them. And Jesus comes along. And Matthew 25 is a passage that I hate. I hate it. Because I can't read it without stopping several points to go, you can't be serious. Because this is what he says, Jesus. 2535, I, I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came in to visit me. And the righteous one said, well, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When did we see you thirsty? Give you something to drink. 
When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you a stranger? When, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Needing clothes and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king replied, I tell you, whatever you did, one of the least. Brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And let me be absolutely clear what he says here. Because this is a familiar, I don't like it, hate it passage, I'd rather forget. But here's what he says. On the final day of judgment, God is going to separate two people. One, people who gave lip service to, I believe in you, I follow you, I worship you, and those who truly believed. What is the sign? What is the evidence? Worship attendance? Small group attendance? Simple. Were you hospitable to the poor? You can't be serious, Jesus. Were you hospitable to the hungry, thirsty? You can't be serious. Did you welcome them? Because ultimately, that is a sign of a genuine, sincere relationship with me. How do you get around that? How do you get around? Jesus clearly, clearly is not saying you need to do that to be saved. We all know that's not what he is saying. He is saying that is the inevitable sign, though, of a heart that's been touched by the gospel. How do you and I get around the fact that Jesus says, in the stranger is me? How do I get around the fact that in the poor, in the weak, the marginalized is him? And that he says, you don't have a genuine relationship with me. It may be full of compliance and duty, but the way that you treat the poor, the hungry, and the immigrant shows the reality of your relationship with me. And if you are not a Christian here, by the way, can I just ask you something? Do you realize that if you're rejecting Christianity, that's the Christianity you're rejecting? Could it be possible that when the Benedictine monks say, nobody you encounter on a daily basis is incidental. There's no accident, incidental encounters on a daily basis. Could it be possible that in the poor is Jesus, in the homeless is Jesus, in the weak, the thirsty, hungry is Jesus? That when we pass by them, we're passing by Jesus. What implications does justice have for radical hospitality? There's one more passage I want to take you to, and then we're done. Isaiah 58, 6. This is a passage, if you've been around New Community, I probably come around once at least a year. Isaiah 58, 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? When we think justice, we think individual rights in the West in America. I ain't want justice. I want my rights. But you need to understand that every time the Old Testament mentions the word justice, it assumes a background. Here's the background. The background to justice was this concept of shalom. That God created the world and all his facets to function in harmony so there's a universe of flourishing, peace, and wholeness. That we were created, the world was created so that we will be in right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, and right relationship with the world. The metaphor that the rabbis used was that of a fabric or a garment. 
Think of a garment, a beautiful, I wish I had something to show you, a beautiful, beautiful, large garment with thousands of threads. But what makes it a beautiful garment is that those thousands of threads have gone over, gone under, gone around each other thread. And they're interconnected, interwoven in, a, in, 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 in an intimate, intimate way. And when those threads have gone over, under, an intimate way with each other thread, there is peace, flourishing, harmony. And we say in our culture that the fabric of our society is what? Unraveling. See, when sin entered the world, we underestimate the consequence. When sin entered the world, every single aspect of the world began to disintegrate and fall apart. When our relationship with God fell apart, every relationship, each other, the creation began to fall apart. And the consequence of sin is not just spiritually broken. Systems are broken. Physically we're broken. Marriages are broken. Relationships are broken. Every facet of creation is broken. Every facet of creation is broken. So what does it mean to do justice then? How do, we, how do we do justice? Listen to what Isaiah says in verse 7. Is it not then, check this out, say that word with me. Is it not to what? Your food with the hungry. And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe them. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Here's the second implication of what you need to know. Radical hospitality requires you to see you in the stranger. Not just God in the stranger, but you in the stranger. Peter, where do you get that from? The oppressed, the hungry, the poor wonder, the naked. What does God call them? What does God call them? They are your what? Don't turn away from your what? Your flesh and blood. It literally means blood relatives. You know what we call blood relatives in our culture? We call that what? Family. And God is saying, that's your brother. That's your sister. God is saying, there's a solidarity to you with the poor, with the immigrant, the refugee, the Muslim. There's a solidarity to you that your culture and your society are blinded to that I'm not blind to. When one member of the body suffers, what? All the members suffer with it. We all know Dr. King's quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice, what? Everywhere. But you don't know the quotes before that and after, do you? He said a couple other things. The full quote of that is, I'm cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a justice everywhere. And then he says this, he understood, Dr. King understood Isaiah 58. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Tied we are, he said in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I am responsible for you, and you are what? Responsible for. <sighs> I've been thinking a lot about the group Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan, and I'm realizing maybe the point of that story is not to remember to be kind to the stranger. Maybe the point of that story is to remember 
that every single one of us will one day be that guy on the road needing help. Because nobody's going to escape pain. What does it mean to say, I see me in the stranger? And then third and lastly, radical hospitality requires you to share. Share, literally. I had you say it means to wait and to serve. And here's what this means. Because I want to bring it down as practically as I possibly can. To share and to serve. The hungry, the poor, naked, literally means this. It means take all the threads of your life, your education, your network, money, time. Take all the threads of your life. And God says, I want you to look at your city, neighborhoods, and find places where there's greatest fallenness, greatest brokenness. Find places where there's greatest need because things are falling apart. And God's saying, take the threads of your life. Everything you have, education, money, time, whatever resources God has entrusted to you, take all of that, find those places. And he says, I want you to go and plow back into that and invest it. Let me be really, really clear. Justice and doing justice is not just about serving in open arms, protesting and marching. Those are unbelievably great things to do. But doing justice means recognizing I am one and the same with my brothers and my sisters. And for whatever reason, God has entrusted to me all these resources. Ownership mentality says I am accountable to no one. Stewardship mentality says I'm accountable to God. So I take my time, my energy, my resources, my education, and I, and I say, where can I go so I can invest and pour back into community so where things are once falling apart, they could what? Come together. Do you know how much God has entrusted to you and to me? New community? See, so you can come on up. I'm going to expound on this quote. Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite authors, Old Testament author, said this. When it comes to doing justice, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. While the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Think about what our world would look like. Can, by the way, can, I got one amen. Can, can you get an amen to this? Think about what our world look like if the righteous and the just said, I've been given all of these incredible resources. And what does it mean for me to plow it back into the human community so that there is shalom for everyone? In case you go on, that's so stupid. Like, who, who would actually do that? Who would actually, you know, take, come from a point of advantage and, and disadvantage themselves? Who, who, who would do um. Second Corinthians 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich who 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 would be dumb enough to leave the comforts of heaven and become 
See, see when, when, when the Bible says that God identifies with the poor in the Old Testament, you don't realize until you come to the New Testament to what extent he did that. He does it literally. He is born in a feeding trough, the Son of God, the creator of the world, born in a feeding trough. He rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, spends his last night in a borrowed room, and when he dies, he is laid in a what? A borrowed tomb. Do you have any idea how much he identified with the poor and injustice? How much does he identify with those who are victims of injustice? His entire trial was a miscarriage of justice. Jesus identifies with the millions of people on earth today who cry out and saying, is there justice for me? Jesus says, yes. So on that final day, don't say, when did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you captive? On the cross, on the cross, we see him naked. On the cross, we see him thirsty. On the cross, we see him captive. For who? For who? Say it with me. For who? For me and for you. For us. You will never hear me be able to live a radically hospitable life. Never unless you experience his welcome. Never. Let me end with this. I didn't want Mother Teresa to have the last word. I wanted Jesus to have the last word, but today I'm going to have to give Mother Teresa the last word. Why? Because for me, for me, whenever I talk about this, I'm that person that goes, I can't solve the world's hunger problem. So I don't do anything. To which God goes, whoever asked you to solve the world's hunger problem? I didn't. So if there's anybody sitting there going, it's so big, it's so huge, it's so evil, so big, what can I do, what can I do? And you're paralyzed? Mother Teresa, I'll let her have the last word. Here's what she said. Never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time and start with the one nearest you. Hear me now, hear me. Look up here, hear me. Find the one in your path today, tomorrow. The one, the one. Don't worry about others, the one. And do justice for that one. It's enough. Get this now. It's enough.